0: Hi everyone, this is Scott. If you're a fan of The Ancient World, please support the Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash world. Thanks again for listening. In bringing the story back to Karchemish, I need to start with some good news and bad news. I'll assume that you're bad news first types of people, so I have to tell you right off the bat that I need to make a few corrections and amendments to the story I've told so far, which is what happens when you read a few dozen new articles, crunch a few numbers, and factor in a few new inscriptions. The good news is that I haven't led you too far astray, and also that the new aspects of the story actually make it more interesting. So let me take you back to the time of the transition from the great king Tarhunta of Hadi to the country lord Suhi of Karkemish. Way back in episode C8, I said that a senior official named Suhi succeeded Uratarhunta to the throne of Carchemish in the mid-11th century B.C. Based on my updated understanding, what I need to do is redefine the nature of that transition and also push it forward a few decades, to right around 1000 B.C., which doesn't really screw things up too much, other than some associations I'd made to the attack of the Assyrian king Bel Kala and the report of Winamun, both of which did take place in the first half of the 11th century. So, if you'll allow me, let me reground you circa 1000 BC in the Syrian city of Carchemish. The city's ruler is the Hittite great king Uratarhunta, who can trace his line all the way back to the Hittite great king Supaluliuma I. Sometime during, or shortly after, Uratarhunta's reign, a large basalt monolith was raised in the temple of Kubaba at Carchemish. The stele bore an inscription in Luian hieroglyphs concerning the great king Uratarhunta. Great King Hero, King of the Land of Karchemish, son of Sapaziti, Great King, Hero. For him a dispute arose with the land of Sura, and he opposed an army. To the King Uritarhunta, the mighty storm god and the goddess Kubaba gave a mighty courage, and he resolved the dispute. The text concludes by noting that Suhi King Uratarhunta's dear kinsman, the ruler, the country lord of the city of Carchemish, put up this stele. The inscription was surmounted by a winged sun disk, the emblem of Hittite royalty. In episode C8, I mentioned that, based on his name, the figure known as Suhi may have been of Sutu or Suthi in extraction, with the Sutu being nomads of the Middle Euphrates. Regardless, the inscription clearly marks Suhi as both a relative of the great king and country lord of the city of Carchemish, a role that gave him the authority to erect a stele in the city's main temple. Most importantly, the stele suggests that Suhi didn't so much usurp Uratarhunta's throne, but instead that both men ruled concurrently, only in two different roles. The meager evidence points toward the institution of some kind of diarchic ruling system around 1000 BC, with the great kings retaining their royal prestige, but with actual power increasingly invested in a new line of country lords or chief administrators, of whom Suhi was the first. For convenience, you can think of the country lords as viziers or prime ministers, and the great kings as figurehead monarchs. I previously made a lot of hay about the end of the line and title of Hittite Great King, but the truth may be more subtle. The line may have endured for a few more generations we just can't be sure because, whatever the case, Suhi's descendants stopped mentioning them in inscriptions. Before we carry this understanding forward, there's one more item in this first inscription that's worth noting. It records that for Uratarhunta, a dispute arose with the land of Sura, and that the great king opposed an army and resolved the dispute which is easier to understand when you consider that Sura was very likely Assyria. The Assyrian king in 1000 BC was assur rabi II. Despite his incredibly long reign of 41 years, we know virtually nothing about him. Except the later and much more famous Assyrian king Shalmaneser III just happened to inscribe the following snippet. At the time of Asur-Rabi II, king of Assyria, the king of Aram, i.e. northern Syria, took two cities by force. The cities are named as Petru and Mutkinu, both of which lay near the city of Til-Barsip along the Middle Euphrates. From this, we're able to unpack a few things. First, that earlier Assyrian kings had apparently planted colonies or military garrisons in sites along the Middle Euphrates, sites that endured over the long period of Assyrian diminishment and withdrawal. Second, that around 1000 BC, at least two of these Assyrian outposts were forcefully seized by a king of northern Syria. And third, that the only local ruler recorded as being in dispute with Assyria at the time was the great king uretar of Carchemish. Okay, so now we're ready to take things forward. When Suhi died around 970 BC, the role of country lord of Carchemish passed to his son, Astua Tamanza. Sometime after this, the great king Uratarhunta also died, and was succeeded by his son, Tutelaya. which, again, on the assumption that we're continuing the same late Bronze Age Hittite royal line, would make him the Hittite great king the VI. A decade or two later, Astuatamanza also died, and was succeeded as country lord by his son, Suhi II. And just so you know, I've posted a dynastic family tree to help keep everything straight. Luckily for us, it's during the diarchic rule of the VI and Suhi II that we connect with a bit more written history. Historian Trevor Bryce highlights several inscriptions recovered from the city of Karkemish. In one, Suhi II records... The destruction of a city called Alatahana, and makes reference to another city named Hazwana, neither of which is known from other sources. The inscription also contains a reference to Suhi's wife, Bonus T, who is also mentioned in another inscription dedicated to her in another part of the city. Another text contains a reference to an upcoming marriage between his daughter and a king called Tutaliah. On the assumption that this was the great king Tudaliah VI, the inscription suggests that the great kings and country lords were linked through intermarriage. It was during the reign of Suhi II that the pharaoh Shoshank invaded the south, as we covered last episode. At about the same time, the Syrian cities along the Euphrates became acquainted, or rather reacquainted, with the far more significant threat. A new eastern king had come to power, a king who, by his own admission, conquered, defeated, plundered, slaughtered, and flayed his captive enemies alive, with their skins hung over his city walls as a potent object lesson. And after securing lands to his north, east, and south, he'd begun to turn his attention west, in particular toward the Kabul River Valley. He also considered these lands to be his, or more precisely, those of his god, even if they currently happen to be occupied by Aramaeans. The ruler's name was Asherdan II, and he's commonly considered the first king of the Neo-Assyrian Empire. We know all this because... Not only did Asher Dan embark on a series of yearly campaigns, but he also recorded them in excruciating detail. In one Aramean kingdom known as Yahan, Asher Dan relates that I destroyed, ravaged, and burnt their cities. I pursued the remainder of their troops. I inflicted on them a major defeat and carried off their booty and possessions. The rest of them I uprooted. And included them within the borders of Assyria. Bryce notes that some Yahani preserved their lives by migrating west across the Euphrates under leadership of a figure called Gusi. By 900 BC, they'd formed an Aramaean kingdom called Bit Agusi, the House of Gusi, near the ancient city of Aleppo. And I'm happy to report that now that Syria is settling back down, At least, geographically speaking, I've posted a few new maps to help keep things straight. While the slaughter and conquest captured the headlines, Ashurdan also devoted himself to the more workaday side of governing. He relates that, I brought back the exhausted people of Assyria, who had abandoned their cities and houses in the face of want, hunger, and famine. I settled them in cities and houses, and they dwelt in peace. He records installing Assyrian governors in recovered territories, and that he hitched up plows in the various districts of my land, and thereby piled up more grain than ever before. By the time that Asher Dan II died in 911 BC, Assyria was left with three main enemies, the Babylonians to the south, the Nairi to the northeast, and the Aramaeans to the west, which are exactly the same regions that his son and heir, Adad-Nirari II, spent the next two decades warring against. At roughly the same time in the city of Carchemish, both Tutelaya VI and Suhi II also passed away. While Tutelaya was succeeded by two unnamed sons, Suhi was succeeded by his son Katua. Luckily for us, Katua is the best documented ruler of the whole century long Suhi dynasty, so we can at least flesh things out a bit more. One of Katua's immediate changes was dispensing with the diarchic ruling system. In one of his inscriptions, he records a bit cryptically, that the city of Karkemish was empty, and that he acquired it by a legal transaction from the grandsons of Uratarhunta. In other words, Tutelaya's sons had either already left the city, were bought out, or were driven out by force. Either way, the days of power-sharing were over." Before we dig into Katua's monuments, I want to give you a better grounding on the layout of the city itself. And since I haven't been lucky enough to visit there, at least not yet, I'll leave it to archaeologist and historian Nicolo Marchetti. The site of Carchemish lies on an outcrop of natural conglomerate by the right or western bank of the Euphrates, which commands one of the best fords over the large river. Approaching the site, one is first overwhelmed by the majestic earthen ramparts, in places reaching 20 meters high, surrounding the inner city. The ramparts were built shortly after 2000 BC, but continued to be used as fortifications down to Roman times. I've posted a city plan on the blog site, but for the rest of you, it's a fairly basic layout. There's a high citadel, or Acropolis, where the palace of the great kings likely stood. There's the fortified city below the citadel, known as the inner city. And on the side of the city away from the Euphrates is the unfortified outer city. It's also worth mentioning that, at the time of this recording, the city of Carchemish is literally bisected by the border between Turkey and Syria. The ramparts of the inner city are pierced by a series of gates. One of the city's oldest Iron Age features is the so-called water gate, the gate along the Euphrates side, which was decorated with sculpted orthostats during the reign of Suhi I. In an open area near this gate, Katua's father, Suhi II, had erected his own major monument a series of large decorated slabs making up the eastern wall of the Storm God Temple, conventionally known as the Long Wall of Sculpture. Marchetti notes that the friezes depict soldiers and charioteers trampling enemies, while the ruler's wife sits in front of a procession of marching gods and goddesses led by the Storm God Tarhunta. This is something I've actually seen. At least, the portion's on display at the Museum of Anatolian Civilization in Ankara, Turkey. And yes, I've posted pictures on the blog site. As it happened, the Watergate and the Long Wall of Sculpture were only the warm-up acts. Because the country lord Katua was flush with cash and keen to make an impression— like his father and great-grandfather, Katua focused his efforts on the open area of the inner city near the Watergate, not notably in the upper citadel preferred by the former great kings. And if I can channel my friend Dominic from the History of Egypt podcast a bit, let me try to put you in the framework of an approaching delegation. After entering the inner city, you'd approach the palace complex via the newly built King's Gate on the southwestern side of the square. The gate was decorated with reliefs of wild beasts, mythical creatures, and soldiers on foot and in chariots. But its most striking feature was a basalt statue six feet high of a ruler or deity enthroned atop a base of two lions restrained by a bird-headed figure. According to historian Taifun Bilgin and his excellent resource, HittiteMonuments.com, the inscription at the hem of the seated figure's robe mentions the name Atresuha, which may mean soul of Suhi, and represent the dead king Suhi I or Suhi II. Passing along the processional way, you'd see scenes related to two major deities. Marchetti relates that The procession of the god Karhuha features warriors with crested helmets, while that of the goddess Kubaba is made up of priestesses whose heads are covered with veils, bringing offerings, and bearded, short-kilted figures carrying gazelles or goats above their shoulders. Another feature, The Herald's Wall, depicts bull and lion men, sphinxes, and several mythological scenes including one of Gilgamesh and Enkidu killing Humbaba, another with Gilgamesh's master of animals, and another with the storm god Tarhunta and a warrior or king killing a lion. And yes, I posted photos of all these online. Arriving at the palace itself, visitors would encounter outer walls composed of sculpted slabs alternating in black basalt and white limestone. Passing through an elevated monumental entrance, the visitors would then be admitted to a royal pavilion for their audience with the current country lord. In addition to building a new palace complex, Katua also performed a major refurbishment of the Temple of the Storm God at the foot of the Acropolis. Marchetti notes that a bronze cult statue of a storm god with a double-horned cap and silver dagger was recovered from beneath the floor of the temple cella. Judging by the date and context, it was likely a dedication by Catua. All these various monuments and refurbishments were punctuated by inscriptions. Most recording is building projects, but others referencing local rebellions put down by military force. In one, Ketua asserts that, because of my justice, my lord, Celestial Tarhunta, Karhuha, and Kubaba loved me. For me, they set on the war chariot. They ran before me. And I wasted the lands, and I brought the trophies inside, and I came up glorified from those lands. As Bryce notes, Katua also presents himself as a great restorer, who built or rebuilt settlements in devastated areas, thereby bringing prosperity to his whole land. So a bit like Asher Dan II, only with a little less, you know, burning and flaying. Katua's reign lasted from the last few decades of the 10th century BC into the first few decades of the 9th roughly concurrent with that of Ashurdan's son, Adad-Nirari II. As I mentioned earlier, the new king campaigned in Babylonia, Nairi lands, and the Kabor River Valley. And by the way, if you want more details, you can subscribe to the Patreon page, where I just dropped a mini-episode on early Iron Age Babylonia but one of adad-nirari's expeditions brought him uncomfortably close to the kingdoms of northern syria in a clay tablet recovered from the city of assur adad-nirari records that by the command of assur the great lord my lord and the goddess ishtar mistress of battle and strife he marched his troops to the kabur region he calls the territory hanigalbat which is what the Assyrians called Mitanni, since this was basically the heartland of the old Mitanni empire. Every local city he approached surrendered without resistance, and Adad-Nirari records that I received the tribute of the land above and below. Thus, I became lord of the land and brought it into the boundaries of my land. After crossing the Kabur, he then Marched to the city of Guzana, which Abi Salamu, a man of Bit Bahiani, held. This is the first mention of the Aramean kingdom of Bit Bahiani, which was located east of the Euphrates, with its capital at Guzana or Tel Halaf. The kingdom had been founded the previous century by an Aramean king called Kapara. And if you're at all familiar with the Arameans, you've probably seen an image of Kappara. You just may not have known who he was. His colossal statue, recovered from the site, shows him seated on a throne, cup in hand, two long forelocks draped in front, and an expression of cool satisfaction. Its style is very different from anything else I've seen and it's not the only innovative monument from the site. Excavators also recovered a striking man-sized bird of prey with bizarre telescopic eyes, originally fitted with colored inlays. These monuments are among the earliest we have from a largely Aramaean culture, one not heavily influenced by the Neo-Hittites, Phoenicians, or Assyrians. With no written records to shed more light, all we can really do is admire them. From Guzana, adad marched south along the Kabur River, visiting, camping his army, in, and, and exacting tribute from a lengthy list of cities, all of whose rulers he claimed to make his vassals. Approaching the junction of the Kabur and the Euphrates, he entered the territory of Bit-Halupe, From whose rulers he also exacted tribute. Toward the end of the campaign, the king records that I marched to the city of Sirku, which lies on the other bank of the Euphrates and which Mudada, the Lakae, held. Adad Nerari subjugated Lakae and compelled the usual tribute. And while the territory wasn't necessarily substantial, the incident was significant because it's the first time since the raid of ashur bel that the Assyrians had crossed the Euphrates. Shortly after his return to Assyria, adad II died, and was succeeded by his son, Tukulti-Nanurta II. The name was clearly meant to evoke the high point of Assyrian prestige. As you may recall from episode C3, his Bronze Age namesake Tukulti-Nanurta I was a powerful king who defeated both the Hittites and Kassites. In any event, the priorities of Tukulti-Nanurta II were basically the same as his father's, and he spent his reign fighting in many of the same regions, though he never crossed the Euphrates. While successful, at least in Assyrian terms, Tikultina Nurta II only ruled for six years before dying in 884 BC. His most potent legacy was paving the way for the reign of his son, Ashur Nasir Apli. Ashur is guardian of the air, better known to us as Ashur Nasir Paul II. The new king would change both Syria and Neo Assyria in countless significant ways many of which we'll cover next episode. But right off the bat, it was business as usual, conquering cities, massacring prisoners, and impressing captured soldiers to work on his projects. And it's not like he needed an excuse to come west, but during his first year in power, he got one. While off campaigning in the land of Katmuhu, Asher Nasserpal received a report that the city Suru, which belongs to Bit-Halupe, has rebelled. They have killed Hamataya, their governor, and appointed ahi Iababa, son of a nobody, whom they brought from the land of Bit-Adini, as their king. And again, I'll direct you to the updated maps. I mentioned a while back that Paul's grandfather, Adad-Nirari II, had subjected Bit-Halupe to tribute. So to unpack the report a bit, the Assyrian vassal king of Bit-Halupe had just been killed and replaced with a ruler loyal to bit adini We'll get much more into Bit-Adini next episode, but the kingdom's ruler in 883 was either a man called the son of Ariahina or possibly the son of Hamiata. Whoever it was, their apparent motive was testing the resolve of the new Assyrian king. It certainly got his attention. As Ashurnasirpal records, I mustered my chariotry and troops and made my way to the banks of the river Kabur. After extorting tribute from a few local towns, he marched on the city of Suru. He notes that the nobles and the elders of the city came out to me to save their lives. I captured ahi ababa son of a nobody, whom they brought from the land of Bit-Adini. With my staunch heart and fierce weapons, I besieged the city. All the guilty soldiers were seized and handed over to me. In victory, Ashur Nasserpal plundered Suru's palace and temples, taking everything of value, including the city gods. He also installed a new Assyrian governor. And then, well, Ashur Nasserpal got downright brutal. I erected a pile in front of the gate, I flayed as many nobles as had rebelled against me, and draped their skins over the pile. I flayed many right through my land, and draped their skins over the walls. I brought ahi e to Nineveh, flayed him, and draped his skin over the walls of Nineveh. Which likely answered any lingering questions on the topic of Assyrian resolve. It's also roughly around this time that the century-long reign of the House of Suhi may have finally come to an end. Upon his death in the 880s BC, the country lord Katua of Carchemish was succeeded by a cryptic figure named Sengara. It's possible he came from the same royal line, but it's equally likely he came from outside. There's no real way to know for sure since he left no royal inscriptions. In the years to come, Sangara would face two growing threats to his kingdom's regional prominence. The first, unsurprisingly, was the new Assyrian king. The second, maybe less anticipated, was the military expansion of a neighboring polity, the Aramaean kingdom of Bit Adini. Ancient World Podcast is part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network, along with My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, The Explorers Podcast, and other great shows.